0: Book of Revelation, Chapter One. We will be continuing uh, in this series we're calling Doxology, looking at these uh, words of glory or glory sayings in the New Testament. Uh, today we're going to look at the second half of this doxology that we started last week. I think it will help us to understand some of the things we were talking about just a moment ago with the kids, and understand why the Christian life is the way that it is. That's a big thing to understand. So go ahead and stand if you are able. And we will read Revelation 1, 5-6. This is Revelation 1, 5-6. To, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth. Show us Christ and His grace in this doxology this morning. And by the power of Your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know You and love You and follow You more and more each day. People who are conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, I was a music major... In college, at least I started out as a music major, a classical performance degree. Uh, I had to log a certain number of hours at concerts and go to all of these things. Uh, But anyway, I was a music major. Uh, There was just one problem with being a music major, and that's I hated classical music. (laughs) I was in a classical performance degree, and I hated it. I had to go to these concerts, Baroque quartets, and piano ensembles. Those always put me right to sleep. Uh, I didn't even know baroques, quartet or pianos ensembled, I was completely lost because I hated classical music. I was just a missionary kid guitar picker from Mexico. What are you asking of me? Um, so it's probably no surprise that I was only a music major for a grand total of one semester. It's hard to be a music major very long when you hate classical music. Why do I tell you this story? Because sometimes you're a Christian who hates being one, I think it's fair to say and to assume that you don't always love being called to be a Christian and what that calling means. Maybe I'm the only one who has ever felt that way, but I don't think I am. Sometimes you struggle with being a Christian. Maybe you love it less than you would like to admit. It's a huge struggle to appreciate the calling that God has placed on your life. Living to God's glory is hard. Living this doxology-shaped life that we've talked about, living a life where all glory is pointed to God alone, it's incredibly difficult. It's hard to live up to. Maybe you're here this morning, but you're thinking about switching majors. Maybe you're thinking about dropping out altogether. But there's good news. You don't have to keep hating what's hard. I don't hate classical music anymore. It's great. It's the radio preset in my car. Uh, Even Sophie enjoys it now. Uh, When she was a little younger, she would always ask uh, for me to turn on Spotify and play the, ah! For her, that's uh, Mozart's uh, choral playlist, uh, or chorale playlist. See, I know a lot about classical music. Uh, I actually listened to that playlist this week in my study when I was preparing this message. Can't believe I've been admitting that with as much as I used to hate classical music. But my point is this, it's possible to find beauty in something you once found hard to love. This second half of John's doxology in Revelation 1, 5-6 is all about the high calling of obedience and worship placed on your life as a follower of Jesus. To Him who made us a kingdom, John writes, priest to His God and Father. It's all about living under God's rule, and it's about living a life of worship, living a life where all glory is directed upward to God. It's a wonderful way of life, but it's not easy. Like all things that we find difficult, It's hard to love something that you find hard to do, something that you're not very good at. So as hard as it may be, though, John thinks it's worth praising God about. It's what features in his doxology here at the beginning of Revelation. To him who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, If you're willing to go there with me, I, I want to look at What John does here, describing the Christian calling, even if you feel like giving up today, even if life has been hard and it's a struggle to be a Christian, look with me today at how John describes this calling that's placed on your life. And consider how Jesus gives you hope even when you struggle with how hard it is. I want to show you that you can live out your Christian calling and you can love living out your Christian calling too. So I want to look at three important truths with you from this doxology about your calling as a Christian. Three truths. Truth number one, it's a high calling. Truth number two, it's a hard calling. And truth number three, it's a hopeful calling. So first truth, your calling as a Christian is a high calling. John's doxology, this word of glory to God, it's being shaped at this point by a moment in the Old Testament story of Israel in Exodus 19. In fact, I'm convinced that what we looked at last week, this idea of being set free by his blood, I'm convinced that what's behind that is Passover night in Egypt, when blood marked the doors of God's people, sparing them right on the cusp of being freed from slavery in Egypt. This whole period of Passover and Israel's deliverance in the Exodus and being formed as a holy nation is all in the background here behind John's doxology. Look at Exodus 19 with me in your Bibles. Look at Exodus 19, verses four to 6. Here you have the Hebrews who have been set free from slavery in Egypt, and we have the beginnings of a covenant made with Israel, when they entered the national covenant at Sinai and were set apart from all the other nations as God's holy people. This is Exodus 19:4 to 6. God tells Israel, "You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians." And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, here it is, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This idea of being a kingdom and priests in John's doxology, it comes straight out of Exodus 19. what does it mean? What does it mean when John says that Jesus has made you a kingdom and priests to God our Father? If that's our high calling, it's important to understand what that means. So let's look at these two ideas, kingdom and priests. First, the idea of kingdom. You're called to obey God as members of his kingdom. So what's this kingdom stuff all about? It's not swords and castles with moats and dragons and crocodiles in the water. Uh, charming princesses, beautiful princesses. Uh, I may have got that mixed up. But kids, if that's what you thought, where you thought we were going, uh, that's not what this kingdom is all about. I'm sorry to disappoint you grown-ups too, as much as we'd like to be all about horses and moats and dragons and castles. Uh, the kingdom in its most basic form is citizens under a ruler, citizens under a king. And you add to that this covenant idea from the ancient Near East where if you were delivered by a great king, You owed allegiance to that great king as your duty. If you were set free, then you then had this bond, this obligation to your deliverer because he had set you free. You would obey his laws because he had delivered you. That's what the kingdom is. A people delivered by God, formed as citizens under his rule, owing allegiance and service to the one who set them free. So we're saved out of our disobedience that deserved God's wrath. And we're delivered, not just out there into the world to do kind of whatever we want, thank you Jesus, but we are brought under the rule of King Jesus. We're brought into his kingdom, and we owe him obedience and allegiance and loyalty every day. Deliverance implies duty. It demands duty. Living life under God's rule, obeying God in everything you say and do living the doxology life of giving glory to God through kingdom obedience. This means that when you clock in at work or when your parents' kids shake you awake for school or when the kid wets the bed at 3 a.m. in the morning, you don't call the shots. You don't set the agenda. As bleary-eyed as you may be in that moment, wishing you were back in your warm, cozy bed, you're not the one who calls the shots anymore. You're not on your own time, Christian. You are serving the king who has delivered you in that moment. Your Christian calling always and everywhere is one of total obedience to God. You're called to obey God, the one who has set you free and not go your own way and do your own thing. This idea of kingdom, it has this sense of allegiance and obedience to a new ruler because deliverance implies duty to the one who has delivered you. So that's the kingdom part about this calling. What about priests? How are we priests Don't think about priests, uh, you know, like a Netflix series that maybe you've watched or priests that you knew in parochial school growing up. Think about what priests did in the Old Testament. Priests serve in the worship of God. In Israel, you would go up to the temple and the priests would lead the procession and the worship of God. But in another sense, all the people of Israel were priests, priests to the nations. They were a kingdom of priests In Israel, you approach God through the priests, but if you were one of the surrounding nations and you're looking for God, where do you find Him? You come to Israel. Israel would be those who led the nations to the true God of heaven and earth. That's where God will be found. Through the kingdom of priests. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9-10 that part of our priestly calling is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming the excellencies of God with worshiping lips and lives. That's what it means to live the priestly life. Come and see God's mercy. So on a Wednesday afternoon in Warrington or wherever you work, when your coworkers are looking for hope and answers and meaning in life, they should be able to look over toward your workstation or come into your office or scroll through your social media and see somebody who has a strange hope that they know nothing about. See someone who is living this doxology life worshiping God and through that life pointing them to the one who can give them hope. Your life should make people scratch their heads and ask, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? And then as a kingdom of priests, you lead them to the only one who can save, to the only one worthy of our worship. That's the doxology life that points all glory to Jesus. So kingdom of priests, you're a kingdom, obeying God in all things, and you're priests leading people to God with the way you live. That's your calling. That's what it says in Romans 12. It says that discerning God's will and doing God's will, obedience, is a spiritual act of worship, a living sacrifice. This idea of our obedience and our worship being the calling that we have as Christians So why is it a high calling? We see what kingdom is, we see what priest is, but why is it a high calling to be called to be a Christian? There's no higher calling because there is no greater love by which anyone anywhere has ever been called to do or be anything. That's why it's a high calling. It's a high calling in the first place because God lovingly delivered you to fulfill this calling. Look again at Exodus 19 verse 4. This is a beautiful truth. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God is speaking here about his loving deliverance of Israel from slavery. This beautiful picture, this tender way of describing how he has loved and delivered Israel. Deuteronomy 32:11 describes Israel in her captivity like a baby eagle that has tumbled out of the nest. And this eagle is tumbling down, plummeting toward the unforgiving ground below, and mama eagle swoops down and catches this baby eagle on its pinions, its soft outer feathers, and carries it back to the nest. That's how God describes his love delivering his people. When you were free-falling, helpless, captive to sin, plummeting toward destruction and death, God saved you in this way. With this tender love, Strong yet tender wings stooping down and stopping your fall and carrying you back to life with him. That's the love that has called you. I think John has this image in mind when he says those tender words at the beginning of this doxology, to him who loves us. Our calling as Christians isn't a sitting on a high horse kind of high calling. It shouldn't be anyway. And if you've ever got that impression being around Christians, then I apologize for that. That is not why the Christian calling is high. There is nothing to be arrogant about. We should be the most humble people of all. The only grandiose thing about being a Christian is the great love of God that has delivered us. So it's not that kind of a high calling. It's a high calling because we have been lovingly delivered. It's also a high calling because God has consecrated you to fulfill this calling. Consecrated. What does this mean? we read that he made Israel a treasured possession among the peoples. So what does it mean to be consecrated? It's something that's declared sacred, dedicated or set apart uh, for service or for worship. Maybe the closest carryover we have uh, to that idea today is the christening of a ship. The christening of a ship. These days, uh, from what I gather, breaking a bottle of champagne over the bow and there's a celebration and the ship is dedicated or christened for service. And there's still religious overtones there, uh, but there's a shadow of something sacred that lingers in that idea. Something set apart for service. Of course, these days you end up with naming ceremonies mingled with internet polls to decide a name. Does anybody remember Bodie McBoatface? 2016. 247, 287 million dollar British research vessel. Let's let the internet name it. What should we call it? I know. How about Bodhi McBoatface? It takes all the sacred out of a christening. But it's pretty funny, you have to admit. But this is no Bodie McBoatface calling that we've received as Christians. This is the deliverance that we have received from a loving Father who has rescued us, who has saved us and delivered us from desperate ruin. It's the love of God, Christian. What a high calling this is. So let's get on with it. Let's praise the Lord. Let's uh, praise His rule, declare His glory it's not that easy, is it? We wish it was that easy, but sometimes, if you're being honest, you hate it. You hate it because it's such a hard calling. So let's look at that together. It's a high calling, but second truth, it's a hard calling. Why is it a hard calling? This weekend, I went fishing with Sophie. It was her first time fishing. Uh, We were getting set up, baiting the hook. I pulled out the worms and opened them, and she looks with disgusted intrigue. We pull out a worm And I broke it in half. More disgusted intrigue. And I stuck it on a hook and I threw it in the water. And uh, Sophie, always the encourager, kept saying, Oh, my little worm is doing so good. You're doing so great, little worm. I think the worm would beg to differ. (laughs) The worm was having a very bad day. Sometimes that's what it's like to come to church. You come to church and you're told things like, Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? Isn't it amazing, let's sing praise to Jesus. And you're sitting there feeling like that little worm. You're sitting there feeling like my life just got broke in half and thrown into a cold lake. And you want me to sing praise to Jesus? Really? I think that's why we need to be honest about how hard the Christian calling is. I think we have every reason to believe that those first readers of the book of Revelation struggled with this very same thing. Revelation is written with what's hard about this calling in mind. It's written to uh, reveal to these first readers and to us um, in their struggles and in ours uh, the victory of Christ in what sometimes seems like one long limping defeat. The victory of Christ when everything seems pretty bleak from our earthly vantage point. When it seems like we've been categorically defeated I like how Vern Poitras put it when he said, Revelation implicitly issues a challenge like Joshua's. In Joshua 24, 15, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. That's a great point. And it's so hard to respond rightly to that challenge. Choose you this day whom you will serve. It's a war. It's a battle in every sense of the word. Maybe we can narrow that battle down to two battle fronts to help us understand what we're up against, how hard our calling is to obey and worship God. On the one hand, it's a hard calling because of tribulation, because of tribulation. Let's call this the world pushing against you, the world pushing against you. That's one battlefront that we face. Affliction, persecution, it's this major theme in Revelation, and it's one major front in the battle for your obedience and worship. The world pushing against you uh, to bend your allegiance its way. To defect to the kingdom of man and to follow a different rule. To hop ship to a different kingdom. This is an important principle to remember when you face how hard the Christian calling is. Tribulation precedes triumph. Tribulation precedes triumph. We see this in Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's Revelation 7, 9 through 10. By the way, since we're only a few weeks out from Palm Sunday, which recently uh, we we celebrated, uh, it's worth noting that these crowds coming into Jerusalem, waving palm branches in their hands on that triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, they had it all wrong. They expected a king who would deliver them from political oppression. They expected this deliverance in the short term, but they didn't realize that tribulation precedes triumph. They didn't realize that this freedom would be something that came at a great cost to the king whom they would follow. Maybe freedom from tribulation, just life being easier, was something you expected when you became a Christian. It's been pretty underwhelming in that regard, you might say. But tribulation precedes triumph, and there's no greater picture of that than the cross of Jesus Christ. The throng of worshipers in Revelation 7, they're those who got it right, praising the king with palm branches in their hands. Not a king to deliver them from political tribulation, but a king who was brought through the other side by his dying triumph and his resurrection victory. And like you, this great multitude that John saw in heaven was well acquainted with the world pushing against it. Look at verse 13 in Revelation 7. If you have that handy. Revelation 7, 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. Kids, that's a great way to say I have no idea. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The ones coming out of the great tribulation. They're standing there praising God and singing with palm branches in their hands in this this vision. Praising the king who has delivered them. Tribulation precedes triumph. We've already looked at Exodus 19 and the deliverance of the people in the background of this doxology. So it's worth noting here that in Revelation 7, this word tribulation is the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament used to describe the slavery and suffering in Egypt. They were under the same word tribulation as they suffered and awaited deliverance. You miss it in the English, but if you're a believer in John's day listening to Revelation as it's read aloud in the churches, you hear that and you think, oh, the great tribulation. Like God's people groaning in tribulation in Egypt. But then they were glorifying God as He delivered them to the other side of the sea. The world pushes against God's people throughout all of redemptive history. It might take the shape of slavery in Egypt. It might take the shape of captivity in Babylon. Today, it might take the shape of pressure to conform to godless philosophies or agendas. Or in some parts of the world, even involve imprisonment and death in the present day. But tribulation precedes triumph. Our high calling as a kingdom and priests, obeying and worshiping God is a hard calling because of the tribulation that the devil hurls against God's people, trying to sway their allegiance to his side. It's also a hard calling because of temptation. If you have tribulation as this one battlefront, you have temptation as the other. If the world is pushing against you to break your allegiance and bend it to itself, then this is the world pulling you towards it to fulfill its sinful desires. It's pushing against you to break you or pulling you towards it to sin, to corrupt your priestly worship of God. This is something else that plays out in Revelation. Revelation 17.4 says, The woman, this vision that John has, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. That's the picture of a temptress holding out a golden cup of temptation. Eat, drink, and be satisfied in me. Whispering in your ear, having a hard time with your high calling to obey God? I have a better idea. Let all that go and follow me. Fulfill your sinful desires and be satisfied in me. I will satisfy you. When you face the pull of the world towards it to fulfill those sinful desires, I just want you to remember one thing as it holds out that golden cup of temptation. The golden cup of temptation is full of dirt. And you know this if you have ever drank from it. It is full of chalky, soul-choking dirt that will not satisfy you. No matter what you think, no matter how long you try, no matter what you try, it will not satisfy you. We think it might, especially when we're ready to throw in the towel. Maybe you've been there this week and you're ready to throw in the towel and just take one long swig of whatever the world has to offer. Don't do it. That's the world pulling you towards it in temptation. So your, t- your Christian calling is a high calling. It's also a hard calling. And at this point, you're saying, that's exactly my point. What is the point? Why am I here? How can I even do this? That's why you need to hear this final third truth. If you're thinking, It's too hard to do. You're half right. It is too hard for you to do. But you're only half right. And that's what this last truth teaches us. It's a hopeful calling. You can live out your Christian calling and learn to love it too. Let's think again about Exodus. Exodus. God says, here's what I did. Here's what I'm calling you to do. And here's what you will be if you do what I'm calling you to do. Don't miss the if if you do what I'm calling you to do. That's the Mosaic Covenant. God's arrangement with the nation of Israel, this covenant made with Israel at Sinai, and I know that it could be one of those words that's like a shot of Novocaine to the frontal lobe, so stick with me. This covenant that's made with Israel, this covenant is conditional in the sense that there is an if writ large over the covenant with this nation to remain in the land, if you will be my people, or if you will do this. The people are pretty horrible at it, almost as if that was the point all along. It's almost as if the condition attached to being God's special people among the nations was intentional, to teach them something and to teach us something. If you notice when we read, I won't read it again, but in Exodus 19, all the people answer, right, when when God lays out these terms of the covenant, what do they say? They say, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Don't you just read that and think, hmm, ambitious much, are we? Then in the very next breath, hey guys, crazy idea, but hear me out. What if we take all of our jewelry and melted it down and made a golden calf out of it and worshipped it instead of the God who just delivered us from slavery? All that the Lord has spoken we will do? It doesn't take very long. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You throw in the whole 40 years in the desert fiasco, the first generation doesn't even make it to Canaan. Where's the hope in that? Why are we here when our forefathers blew it so long ago? There was once an Israelite who actually said, all that the Lord has spoken, I will do. And he did. His name was Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. At his baptism, Jesus went through this ceremonial washing of consecration just like Israel at the foot of Sinai was consecrated in preparation to receive the law. They turned around and ignored God's law through idolatry. Jesus obeyed it until the last drop of His blood was shed. All that the Lord has spoken, I will do. Forty years in the desert, they couldn't get it right. Forty days in the desert, and Jesus does not bow the knee to the tempter. He tried hard. The devil takes Jesus to a high mountain. Matthew 4, 8-10. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Obedience and worship. This way of life that we've talked about this morning. Jesus did it. Philippians 2 says, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You see, Jesus bore the penalty for everyone who has ever since longed to love and worship God, but just can't get it right. He's borne the penalty for you when you keep blowing it over and over. Faith in the obedient Son of God is our only hope. The chapter of the Mosaic Covenant is closed now. There's no ethnically defined national people of Israel. There is no longer an if, written over the door to a set-apart nation. In fact, for those Israelites who had the spiritual eyes to see, they never would have banked on the if in the first place, but looked at the grace pointing them to Jesus all along. That if is over with now. Instead, those who have eyes to see today lean on the grace of Christ held out in the Gospel. Confidence in His final finished work for us. That way people from Warsaw to West Africa to Warrington, Virginia can wave palm branches in their hands before the throne. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to them, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, not if, therefore, That's where this high and hard calling leads. And that's why it's a hopeful calling. Because of Jesus. Because there is no if written over it any longer. Only the therefore of what Jesus has done. Is that a calling you could love? Is that a calling that you could sing and praise the Lord about even when it's hard? Following the obedient Lamb of God who has already taken away your sins for everything that you've done, everything that you'll continue to do, You're just getting started in this calling, no matter what stage of life you're at. You're not always good at it. Join the club. But this is a calling worth living. You can follow God and love it too because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ for sinners. So instead of praying myself to end this sermon, I thought I would invite you to do something with me. Take out your bulletin. The passage is written there, and I'd like us to pray this together if this is a calling that you could actually love through faith in Jesus, would you please pray these words together with me? Praying together. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.